Would you pray with me as we get started? Father, thank you for the opportunity to gather to hear from your word. Thank you for your word that instructs us, guides us, teaches us, corrects us, encourages us. Ask that you would work through your word tonight, Father. Apply those things that are true and clear and use it to make us more like your son. It's in Jesus' name that we ask this. Amen. I'd like you to consider for a moment the state of the church in the, the world, the country, here at Mission Road, in our city. Think of the church and the work of the gospel that is going on every day, every moment in God's economy. How would you assess the condition of gospel work in all those arenas, the world, the country, the church? Are you confident in the work of God that's taking place in the world, in this church, in this country? Or do you lack confidence in what's going on? More importantly, I want to ask you whether you lack confidence or you have confidence, why? Why are you confident in the ministry of the gospel in the world or here at Mission Road Bible Church if you are confident? Or why do you lack confidence in the ministry of the gospel if you lack confidence? Better said, I want you to consider the grounds for the confidence or lack thereof that you have when you make an assessment of the gospel ministry that's taking place in the world or here at Mission Road Bible Church. If you're confident, is your confidence based on the abilities of men and the wisdom of men? Do you see success? See success in various ministries and that bolsters your confidence in the work of God? Or if you lack confidence, is it because you've failed to recognize the, the power of God in the midst of opposition and difficulties that face the gospel? And we look at seeming ministerial failures in the world or a tough place to penetrate with the gospel. If you lack confidence in, in that ministry, is it because you, you lack confidence in God's power? The Apostle Paul had every earthly reason to lack confidence for the work of the ministry. He faced hardship of every kind, experienced constant rejection by the Jews that were so dear to him, he was hurt by those whom he loved and nurtured in the church. He, he saw the worst side of regenerate people in the churches that he ministered to and that he addressed in, in his letters that we have. His catalog of sufferings in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 is familiar to us. It is astonishing. Starting in verse 23, he says, I've been beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false, false brethren. I've been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. Who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Those are all reasons from a human standpoint why Paul would not have much confidence in the gospel ministry, are they not? 
But in spite of these hardships, Paul remained confident in his apostolic ministry and in his calling as an apostle. And the basis of his confidence teaches us how we are to view the work of ministry in the world, the work of ministry in this church, our personal ministries to one another and in the world when we're scattered from our gathering. Our study tonight will be in the book of 2 Corinthians. If you would turn with me to 2 Corinthians, we're going to be looking at chapter 2, verses 14 through 17. 2 Corinthians appears to be the fourth recorded letter to the church of Corinth. You had a letter that occurred prior to 1 Corinthians. You had 1 Corinthians, which is in the canon of Scripture. Then you had what is known as a severe letter or an anguished letter. And then you have 2 Corinthians, which we also have in our canon. So that's at least four letters. It's also been called the fourth pastoral epistle because it has so much information about Paul's ministry. And it's so intensely personal from the Apostle Paul. It may be the most personal letter that we have from Paul in the canon. When Paul writes 2 Corinthians, there are several issues that are going on in Corinth that Paul addresses. But the issue that appears to loom the largest is that false teachers have entered Corinth and they're making a mess of things. And Paul's response in 2 Corinthians indicates that these false teachers have been attacking him. They've been calling his apostolic ministry into question, his character, his message. And as a result of that, Paul launches into an apologetic for the ministry beginning in verse 14 of chapter 2 that doesn't end until chapter, uh, verse 5 of chapter 7. His opponents in Corinth rooted their false ministry in worldly wisdom and skill. We see that as we read through 2 Corinthians and get a taste for some of the things that they were doing there. They were disguised as servants of righteousness, Paul said. And as being disguised, they deceived some of the Corinthians into questioning Paul and his ministry. And his response to their attacks teaches us about the right kind of confidence for ministry. Paul confidently responds to their attacks in his defense of the ministry. And his response to them teaches us how we are to view the ministry and where to ground our confidence. Just prior to verse 14, we find Paul in Troas. And he's in a troubled state of heart and mind awaiting word from Titus. He had sent the Corinthians the anguished letter that we read about in verse 4 of chapter 2 via Titus. And he had gone on to Troas for a gospel opportunity But he was in such unrest awaiting word from Titus about the Corinthians that when he didn't find Titus, he left Troas, even an open door for ministry. For the great apostle to leave an opportunity for the gospel is significant. Paul was hurting. A church that he had labored for, invested in, even risked his life for was hanging in the balance and he wanted desperately to know how they received his correction. But in the midst of Paul recounting his anguish in chapter 2, he drastically shifts from the narrative concerning his awaiting Titus and his search for Titus to offer thanksgiving for the outworking of God's purposes in his ministry. And this begins Paul's digression. This begins Paul's defense of his apostolic ministry. Read with me, beginning in verse 14 of chapter 2 in 2 Corinthians. But thanks be to God, who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death. To the other, an aroma from life to life. And who is adequate for these things? For we are not like the many, peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, 
as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. This is the start of Paul's defense. And at the outset of his defense, he thankfully asserts his confidence in his apostolic ministry and his calling. The theme of these three verses is Paul's ultimate confidence for his ministry, for the work of the gospel, for the work of God in light of conventional human wisdom. And from Paul's assertion of his confidence, we are taught the right grounds for our confidence for the work of ministry. You may be sitting there and as you think about the ministry, your confidence, it may be shaken. We've seen an aggressive turn in our culture against Christ. The, um, in the secularists and, and politicians, we, we've seen apparent defeats. We've seen whole denominations turning from orthodoxy. There are a number of things that we could say aren't, aren't going so well. And conventional wisdom, human wisdom, man-centered wisdom may tell us to change strategy. Doubt the mission. Doubt the mission that we were given by Christ. It doesn't appear to be working. Or abandon it altogether. But God's word resets our focus. It sets our focus on him. It corrects our misguided confidence. If we lack confidence because of what's going on, because we're trusting in, in conventional wisdom, in man's wisdom, God's word corrects our focus. And so as we look at Paul's response, Paul's thankful confidence for the work of the ministry that he asserts in the face of, of hardships and defeats, we will see three pillars that uphold a godly confidence for our work in the ministry. That'll be our outline. Three pillars that uphold a godly confidence. The first pillar that upholds godly confidence is the triumphant work of God. The triumphant work of God. In verse 14, Paul says, But thanks be to God who always leads us in triumph in Christ and manifests through us the sweet aroma of the knowledge of him in every place. In spite of the unimaginable difficulties that Paul has endured as an apostle, he is thankful to God for the ministry. Thankful, he, he, he interrupts his, his, his tale, his, his narrative of searching for Titus when he is recounting his dejection, his despair, his anxiety, his unrest in spirit. And he bust, bursts forth in thanks. He is thankful in light of all the circumstances, in light of all the difficulties. Verse 14, Paul puts God in an emphatic position to highlight that, that God is the one. He is the one to whom thanks is directed. And Paul describes actions. He ascribes actions to God that highlight God's work through the ministry of Paul. He leads Paul in triumph, and he makes Christ known through Paul. These descriptions of the work of God, do not, they're not merely referring to one-time events that occurred in the life of Paul. This describes the nature of Paul's ministry. God is leading Paul in triumph, and God is making Christ known through Paul. And that occurs always. Look at verse, verse 14. He always leads us in triumph. God always leads Paul in triumph. And it's in every place that he makes Christ known through Paul. This is the ongoing work of God through Paul. This is the character of Paul's ministry. And is the thought of this work that induces Paul's thanksgiving. This ongoing, ultimately triumphant work of God is, is a pillar for Paul's confidence Paul describes this work of God with dynamic metaphors that are intended to, to bring to mind vivid images in the mind of the Corinthians who he's writing to. If you, if you have a New American Standard or a New King James, verse 14 says, leads us in triumph. If you're reading from the ESV, it says, leads us in triumphal procession. Those phrases come from one term in the original language. 
And it's a term that's found only twice in the New Testament. And it's an image introduced by Paul that is of a Roman triumphal procession. This type of event would have been known to the Corinthians in the Greco-Roman world. They would have been familiar with this. And it conveys the idea of a Roman general triumphantly leading his soldiers and captives through the city in an ostentatious display of victory. It was a really big deal. Josephus, the ancient historian, tells us that such a procession would have been attended by multitudes. Everybody would have been there. There would have been all manner of pomp and celebration, festivities, meals. Quoting him, he says, Now it is impossible to describe the multitude as they deserve to be and their magnificence. This is a, a massive event in Roman culture. And here Paul ascribes the work of the ministry. He describes the work of the ministry to God, victoriously leading this triumphal procession in which Paul, Paul himself excuse me, gets to participate. The work of God is a triumphal procession that Paul is participating in. But notice that his participation is not his own doing. It's governed by his relation to Christ. He says, leads us in triumph in Christ in verse 14. The basis for Paul's relationship with God, the basis for Paul's apostolic ministry is ultimately his union with Christ. That qualifies his role in God's procession. It's in Christ that Paul is led in triumph and in Christ that his ministry is discharged. After painting a picture of this triumphal procession, he also ascribes another action with a metaphor, and that is that, that God manifests through Paul the sweet aroma of the knowledge of Christ. As Paul is led by God in this triumphal procession, God is also manifesting or making known the aroma of the knowledge of Christ. It's the same metaphor of the procession. Historically, the Roman victory procession would have included perfumes and incense and other smells that would have filled the air as the triumphal procession was passing through the city. And here Paul uses that imagery to to paint a picture of God's work of ministry through his life. As Paul is leading the triumphal procession, Paul is, is the instrument through which... Christ is made known in every place at all times. It's this, this complete picture of Paul marching in this procession and God making Christ known through him. It's this understanding of ministry that maintained Paul's godly confidence in spite of all the difficulties that he faced. The work of God through Paul, the triumphant work of God, is the pillar that upholds his confidence. God is the one leading. God is making Christ known. Paul is a participant and an instrument in God's work. And he's confident in that. In light of the difficulties that have surrounded his ministry. The false teachers in Corinth would have pointed out Paul's perceived ministry failures. They pointed at his weaknesses. They would have called his ministry into question. Paul's own testimony in this letter, he says that he was simply an earthen vessel afflicted in every way perplexed, persecuted, struck down. The false teachers would have highlighted those things. They would have highlighted the events in Paul's life that that had given this appearance. But Paul's confidence for the work of the ministry was not in himself. His confidence for the work of the ministry was not rooted in his ability to, to look successful. He was confident in God's work. He was confident in the role he played in God's triumphal procession. From the birth of the church until now, the unbroken chain of gospel ministry has been God's triumphal procession. Think about that for a minute. From the birth of the church until right now, there's been an unbroken chain of the gospel, right? We are all sitting here right now, those who believe in Christ, because somebody evangelized us, and that chain can go all the way back to the apostles. 
God's triumphal procession is the way that that's described here. That entire thing has been God's triumphal procession. God leading, God triumphing over dead souls. God ministering through his servants triumphantly. And it should bolster our confidence that broken vessels like us get to participate in this triumph. Get to participate in God's procession that will ultimately culminate in eternity. If our confidence for ministry success is built on wood, hay, and stubble, things that will not sustain when difficulties and trials inevitably come, then we won't stand. We won't continue. We won't keep on in the ministry. But if our confidence is in in the work of God, in his triumphal work, if we look to that in spite of what external circumstances may be at any place in time, we're bolstered. We're bolstered to keep on in the ministry just as Paul was. Our confidence to carry out the ministry of Mission Road Bible Church as a whole. You're in my confidence to carry out our personal ministries to one another and in the world must be grounded in God's ultimate triumph. The second pillar that upholds godly confidence is the perpetual effectiveness of the gospel. The perpetual effectiveness of of the gospel. Confidence for the ministry must be grounded on the fact that the gospel is always effective, regardless of man's response, regardless of how it's received. Look at verses 15 and 16. For we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To the one, an aroma from death to death, to the other, an aroma from life to life. In these two verses, Paul provides a logical basis for the confident view of ministry that he just gave in verse 14. God makes Christ known through Paul in every place because Paul is the pleasing aroma of Christ to God among all men. Those being saved and those who are perishing. These verses explain the reason why Paul can view a ministry that is full of human weakness, full of hardship, full of difficulty as a triumphal procession. God is always making himself known. And Paul is always the sweet aroma of Christ to God as he carries out his ministry, regardless of how the hearers respond. The illustration of aroma or fragrance continues into these verses, but the imagery changes. The triumphal procession imagery is no longer in mind. It, it, Paul seems to change the metaphor here. Notice that the aroma that Paul refers to starting in verse 15 is diffused in three directions. To God to those being saved, and also to those who are perishing. Paul himself is the sweet fragrance of Christ ascending to the nostrils of God as he preaches amongst those who believe and those who reject the gospel. And it's fascinating to note that Paul uses different terms to refer to the aroma or smell in these verses. In verse 14, he uses a term that refers to aroma in a neutral sense. It's neither a good smell nor a bad smell. It's neutral. In verse 15, he uses a term that refers to an explicitly pleasing fragrance. And then in verse 16, he switches back to the neutral term. I'm going to ask, what's the point? Why are we getting so specific about the various aromas? It's because Paul is emphasizing something. He's emphasizing the pleasure that God takes in his ministry, regardless of the response that he has. Regardless of how Paul's ministry of the gospel is received, God is pleased. 
The fragrance that we see in verse 15 is directed toward God and it invokes the Old Testament language of sacrifice where we read throughout the Old Testament when a sacrificial aroma is pleasing to God. Paul's life and ministry functions as this aroma of Christ and it is pleasing to God also as it is diffused among the two groups that he lists here. Those two groups that encompass all of humanity. Everyone who Paul encountered was either being saved or perishing. They either believed the gospel or they rejected it. For one group, the gospel was salvation, life. For the other group, the gospel was judgment. It was death. But what's profound in these verses is that Paul is always the same aroma to God, whether those he is among believe the gospel or reject it. This means that, God's, that Paul's ministry is pleasing to God as he is faithful to proclaim Christ regardless of how he's received. And that bolsters Paul's confidence. If the false teachers pointed at results, they pointed at rejections. We listed the litany of rejections that Paul himself gives to us in chapter 11. If they pointed at those, they pointed the apparent lack of success to call Paul's ministry into question. But Paul corrects that. He says the truth is, is that his ministry is pleasing to God. He's a fragrance of Christ to God among all men. And it's difficult in these verses to comprehend how the same gospel can be a sweet aroma of life to some and the stench of death to others. A parallel idea is expressed in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 17 and 18, where the same message, the cross, is found to be foolishness to those who are perishing. But to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. It is a difficult theological reality that that God is glorified in his wrath as well as in his grace and mercy. But as we read these verses, we, we must remember that the gospel is a message of salvation. It's a message of good news. Those it condemns are judged because they are rejecting the life-saving message that has been offered. In John chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, Jesus said, For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. God's pleasure in the ministry of Paul is not dependent on the response of the hearers. Paul's ministry is assured heavenly success, even amidst opposition. Now, hearing that, you may be tempted to think that that would result in some lack of concern and apathy toward unbelievers and apathy toward how people respond to the gospel, but that's not so. We could study Paul to correct that. Paul doesn't throw his hands up and respond and say, well, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how they respond. My ministry is always pleasing in God. He wanted everybody to believe the gospel, right? He says as much throughout the scriptures in Acts when he's on trial. He says that he wishes all men were as him except for his chains. He pleaded with men to believe the gospel. So the point here isn't that he's apathetic toward the response. The point is that his ultimate confidence comes from knowing that as he is faithful in his ministry, God is pleased with him regardless of the response. Paul's opponents in Corinth would have pointed his rejection. They brought their own letters of commendation. They commended themselves as something as we see in the remainder of the letter while pointing at the lowliness of Paul. They would have pointed at Paul and said, surely no one who has been rejected and despised like that 
is suitable for apostolic ministry. His message is the wrong message. Obviously, he doesn't have a following. But Paul's confidence is not in his ability to amass a following. His confidence is grounded on the perpetual effectiveness of the gospel. He trusts with confidence that the message he proclaims will always accomplish God's redemptive purposes, whether from life to life for some or death to death for others. Paul had this confidence because he aimed at faithfulness in his ministry. He aimed at faithfulness. Trusting the effectiveness of the message that we are called to proclaim, trusting the effectiveness of the gospel leads to faithfulness. A lack of confidence in the effectiveness of the gospel results in unfaithfulness. If you don't have confidence in the message, you think it should be tweaked. It should be changed. It becomes contaminated with man-centered ideas. Ministry then is no longer rooted in the power of God, but in the wisdom of men. But like Paul, we must trust that God is pleased, that we are a pleasing aroma of Christ to him when we proclaim the gospel with, with faithfulness. Even amidst opposition, even amidst rejection. Many of you, you have labored in prayer and evangelism for lost souls, and you have seen them repeatedly reject the gospel. Keep on. Paul would say, keep on. Stay faithful. Be confident that your faithfulness is pleasing to God. God's pleasure with you is not based on, on your apparent successes. The gospel is effective. Keep at it. We sang this morning the words um, of a hymn, There is a Fountain. One, one verse says, Dear dying lamb, thy precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved to sin no more. And that's true. The gospel will never lose its power until God has called us all home, until Christ returns. The gospel is perpetually effective for accomplishing God's purposes, and that is to be a pillar of our confidence for ministry. The third pillar that upholds godly confidence is the right manner of ministry. The right manner of ministry. Confidence for the ministry must be grounded in the manner of ministry that God has ordained. Look with me at, at verse 17, or actually at the end of verse 16 first. Paul asks, and who is adequate for these things? For we are not like the many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Somewhat surprisingly here, Paul interrupts his description of his ministry to ask a rhetorical question in the last part of verse 16. And for these things, who is sufficient? These things refers to the apostolic ministry Paul has just described in the preceding verses. The triumph of God, the, the being an instrument that God manifests the knowledge of his son through. To, to be responsible for the proclamation of truth that is the smell of life to some and life and death to others. Paul asks who is sufficient for these things. That is, who is adequate. Paul's referring to fitness or competence of one to carry out the work of the apostolic office of the apostolic ministry. The false teachers in Corinth had most likely questioned Paul's sufficiency for ministry, again pointing out his weakness, again pointing out the reception that, that he had taken, the rejection of his message. And so Paul asked the question of himself, and his response both exposes the insufficiency of the false teachers, and it asserts his own God-given sufficiency. Paul's implied answer at the end of verse 16 is, I am. 
I am sufficient. God has provided sufficiency for me. Often we read this and we think that that would be way too prideful for Paul. Paul's asking a question. The obvious answer is no. But I think if we look closer that we see that, that it, is, it assumes a positive response. And that does not insinuate that Paul is boasting in his own adequacy. If Paul says, I am sufficient for these things, he goes on through the letter to tell us why. And he tells us why in verse 17. Look down at chapter 5 of, or I'm uh, sorry, verse 5 of chapter 3. Paul right there says, we, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. And Paul has just described the ministry that he is a part of, that he is confident in as God's work, God's triumph. So he's, it's not a self-sufficiency that he's responding to affirmatively, but he is yet defending the fact that he is sufficient for his work of ministry. And he does that by contrasting his ministry with, with that of the peddlers, as he says here. The argument of verse 17 has a negative comment regarding others who have ministered in Corinth, others who are there, the false apostles, the false teachers, and then positive comments concerning Paul's own ministry. Paul here is shown to be sufficient because he is not like the many who peddle the word of God. The many here refers to a group in Corinth who are peddling God's word for their own gain. Peddler was used in the realm of commerce. It came to denote deceitfulness or trickery in the marketplace. It was also used to refer to inauthentic sophists or philosophers who peddled their message for money and changed their message to suit their hearers, to amass a crowd, to gain finance. The false teachers in Corinth were adulterating God's word, just like those who would add water to pure wine and then sell it in the marketplace as though it was pure. And Paul strikes a contrast between his ministry and that of these hucksters who were taking the word of God and twisting it to suit their ends and, and not being faithful. Those who take advantage and were taking advantage of the Corinthians, they adulterated God's word to gain approval for themselves. But instead, they actually proved themselves to be inadequate for true gospel ministry. But in contrast, the the manner of Paul's ministry reveals his God-given sufficiency. The way Paul describes his ministry here, the manner of his ministry is proof of his credibility. His ministry of proclamation, his gospel ministry, is characterized by traits that the peddlers cannot claim. These traits point toward the sufficiency that Paul has in God. And at the same time, they shine light on the inadequacies of the ministry of those who were running amok in Corinth. First note in verse 17 that Paul says that his speaking is from sincerity. Paul's ministry is carried out out of sincerity. The false teachers in Corinth took pride in appearance and not in heart. Paul indicts them with that in chapter 5 verse 12. But Paul's ministry issues forth from pure motives. That's what's in mind here. His ministry is sincere. It comes out of pure motives. And this was the mark of Paul's conduct for the Corinthians. Verse 12 of chapter 1, he asserts, For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially toward you. Paul speaks with sincere motives. Paul also speaks as from God. Paul's ministry is an as-from-God ministry. 
It does not originate with himself, and it didn't originate with himself. It's not his own mission. It's not his own plans that he carries out. He does not speak what he wills, but what God wills, because God is the one that commissioned him. The false teachers in Corinth preached themselves. They preached their ideas. They preached their wisdom. But Paul preached Christ Jesus as Lord, because his mission was from God. His ministry was as from God. Paul's ministry is also in the sight of God. Verse 17, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. Paul's ministry is always discharged before the watchful eye of God. And that truth governed Paul's ministry and set him apart from the charlatans and the hucksters who perverted God's word for their own ends. He says in chapter 4 of this letter, verse 2, that we have renounced the things hidden because of shame. Not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but my manifestation of truth, commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. In verse 9 of chapter 5, he tells the Corinthians, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. Paul carried out his ministry with faithfulness. He carried out his ministry with confidence. He carried out his ministry as though it was always before the watchful eye of God. Finally, Paul's speaking, Paul's ministry was done in Christ. Just as Paul is led in triumphal procession in Christ, he is the aroma of Christ. So he carries out his ministry speaking in Christ. Christ is the sphere, the realm in which Paul always operates. Everything he does is in Christ. The character of Paul's ministry, as he reveals here, shows his sufficiency to carry out the mission that he had been given. It shows his sufficiency to carry out the mission of the apostles, the mission that he was responsible to discharge. He affirms his, his ministry um, with enough confidence in verse 17 that in verse 1 of chapter 3, he asks a question, are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Clearly, Paul is asserting his sufficiency for ministry. But as we see again, his sufficiency, his confidence for that is rooted in, in the sincerity with which he discharges his ministry as before God, as from God, as in Christ, not in himself, not as a peddler. In contrast to Paul's confidence in the sufficiency that he has for ministry, there is no godly confidence for those who peddle, who adulterate, who pervert God's word for their own gain. Those who are in Corinth can have no confidence. There's no godly confidence, obviously, right, for those who adulterate God's word. Those who minister with insincerity, preaching their own message, unaware of God's holy gaze, prove themselves insufficient for ministry. This morning, there were no doubt countless buildings filled with people who were listening to the cleverness of men. They were drawn there. They needed to hear the gospel. But instead, they heard a crowd-drawing message rooted in the wisdom of men. And those who, who placed their confidence in that appearance, those who placed their confidence in impressive speech or the ability to gather a crowd will be disappointed No matter how successful the ministry ends up, they will be disappointed. Our confidence must be rooted in ministry that is carried out with pure motives, maintaining the mission that God ordained, always cognizant of God's watchful eye, 
and ever and always in Christ. As we asked at the outset, on what is your confidence grounded? What is your confidence for the work of the ministry grounded on? Paul has shown here in response to the attacks of his opponents in Corinth that he has confidence in the triumphant work of God. He is confident in God's triumphant work as Christ is made known through him in every place, always. He has confidence in the effectiveness of the gospel ministry as the purposes of God are carried out among all people, those who believe the message and those who don't. And he's confident that he is pleasing God as he goes forth in faithfulness. And Paul is confident in his God-given sufficiency because his ministry is discharged with pure motives and integrity before God. If you are in Christ, you are a servant. You are a servant of Christ. You have a ministry. You are to be engaged in the work of ministry. You are in the God's triumphal procession that is marching toward eternity, assured of certain victory and privileged to be able to take part in that ministry. Ground your confidence in God. Ground your confidence for your work of ministry in the work of God and not in the wisdom of men. Pray with me, please. Father, thank you for the Apostle Paul and for his word to the Corinthians that you have saved for us to learn from, to instruct us. Thank you for your triumphal procession and for including us in that. And thank you for providing sufficiency for the task you call us to. Enable us to do ministry with integrity, with pure motives, in a way that is pleasing to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.